Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today marks the 38th anniversary of John Carpenter's cosmic horror masterpiece, The Thing, and my good friend Birdo has joined me once again to discuss our favorite elements that make this a timeless classic. Birdo, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me back. No problem, no problem. I always love having you on and getting to shoot the shit about horror movies, so. And we certainly have a fantastic one to talk about today. Yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. I guess it became a classic, right? Yeah, definitely. So. I feel like this movie, especially for people of our generation, we kind of use it as a benchmark with which Mm. we kind of measure a lot of other horror movies that have monsters. Like you always hear people comparing movies that have a focus on practical effects to the thing, I feel like. Right. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely one of those one of those movies that I feel like even at the the 80s, I don't know, other than The Exorcist, that Mm. kind of effect, I feel like. This is probably one of the first movies that I've seen where it has like sliming weird monster mm-hmm. looking thing. It's like I I personally, I mean, I haven't watched many of the 70s scary movies, um, but it seems to me like this is probably one of the first ones to do that monster slimed gross looking thing. Um, for sure. It's definitely it's definitely unique on its own. Like I think you were telling me that this took a while to catch on mm-hmm. to people's attention. So it, um, yeah, it's definitely unique on its own, I think. Yeah, that's a, a great transition because it's wild to me that when this movie came out in 1982, like it was largely panned to the degree that John Carpenter thought he would never work again, which is yeah. just an insane thing to think of looking back. Like it's hard. We've only discovered this movie probably 10 years ago when we were like 18 or something. We started yeah. kind of catching up on some of the older uh, horror movies that we didn't grow up with. And like, this is at the top of the list and remains there. Um, So John Carpenter's The Thing is actually a remake of a 1951 movie called The Thing from Another World, um, which is actually an adaptation of a 1938 uh, short story titled Who Goes There? So John Carpenter's is actually a remake of an adaptation of a book. So there's this kind of generational history to this movie that you don't really know about initially because... I don't know about you, but yeah. I didn't know that there was it was a remake. And I, of course, right. didn't know about a novel that came out in 1938. And it kind of <laughs> just shows how these films can be evolutions of something. Like mm-hmm. the novel introduces the, the setting and the concept. And then the first adaptation kind of brings that to life in a unique way. And then we get John Carpenter's vision for it. And it's infinitely more terrifying than either of the two things that preceded it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of cool that, you know, you find, I guess it's, it's interesting that you said that, that, that it's not his original story. Like he found it somewhere else. Kind of cool. Like just thinking about that and, and the way I guess he interpreted just makes it just so creepy and gruesome and just the way he goes about it. I think it's, uh, it's, it's got his uniqueness and I guess that would, that would see why people would, take a while to catch on to it because mm-hmm. it's got it, it can be pretty gruesome and and at the same time kind of gross with all the legs sticking out when the <laughs> monster starts creating that's kind of yeah. a i guess people who have like phobias and stuff like spider uh freaks me out yes every time so john carpenter's version was the screenplay was written by bill lancaster and mm-hmm. in the carpenter version much like the source material it's derived from 
the thing is set in the Antarctic at an American research outpost. Uh, the team's kind of barren boredom is broken when a Norwegian helicopter hunting a lone husky dog lands at the camp. Uh, and then as we see very quickly, like it's very confusing the intro because when the Norwegians show up, they start shooting at the dog and you're like, yeah. what the hell could this have anything to do with the, like, what's this, what's this all about? Like, it's such a right. strange way and a confusing way to open a movie. And then we learn once the Norwegians have been killed, the American, t- we learn along with the American team that the dog is actually carrying this shape-shifting monster, which slowly be- begins to uh, infect and kind of take on the appearances of the individual remaining crew members. Yeah, it's kind of weird that that intro scene where it's like, why would you want to kill a dog? Like, mm-hmm. out of all the things, especially the dog is beautiful. It's like a beautiful dog. It's like a wolf husky kind of mix. And mm-hmm. then it's like, oh man, that dog is it's a beautiful dog. Why the hell would you want to kill a dog? It's just innocent dog running for its life. But then, yeah, like you said, you know, you slowly get to develop the story. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's a pretty slow introduction, I would say. But I feel like the more you learn, the more you get to know the characters and the more you the story starts um, revealing itself, you kind of get more hooked into it. Mm-hmm. Personally, that's how I felt. It kind of is a slow beginning, but then the more time it takes, like, or not the more time it takes, but like the more you keep watching, you kind of realize, oh, it's more than just a dog. Yeah, the film really has a distinct opening that it is slow to sort of begin introducing the actual concept of the movie, but I love yeah. the tone that Carpenter sets right from the outset where yeah. it's this very like barren wasteland. He even compares mm-hmm. like, these long scenic shots of the Antarctic where there's nothing but snow and kind of these ice cap mountains. He describes it as being like apocalyptic in a way where there's just nothing. There's no life. They're like isolated. Yeah, exactly. They're isolated away from hundreds or thousands of miles from civilization or even an entire other continent away. But even though, so the point that I was going to make is that once we're introduced to like the first living life in this barren place, it immediately begins with hostility. Like the only yeah. two people that, or the only two living things that we see are in some kind of conflict right from the start. And kind of just this right. auspicious beginning where we're completely in the dark about what's happening, why it's unfolding. We just know it's kind of like very violent in a way that, mm. again, kind of sets the tone for the movie. Whereas if we didn't have that violence, we might, the audience might be led astray and kind of like, figuring out what this movie is actually going to be about. But we know that it's an isolated place and a majority of the time, like violence will be occurring or violence will be the result of what happens when living things, people interact with one another. Yeah. I just, when I get back to the, the, the part where you said like talking about the tone of the movie, I feel like the soundtrack also has a, like a great influence. And I think that it was, it's like a certain, like, like the the soundtrack it's like a certain like uh hunting monster kind of like mm-hmm. uh like um rhythm i guess to the beat it's like it's just like a single note that just keeps repetitively playing it almost reminds you of like the predator which i think i have a feeling that the predator was filmed later on mm-hmm. uh a couple of years later and i think they kind of took that from john Cromper's movie uh, the thing um but it has like this like almost alien beat to it the yeah. the the music which kind of gives it this tone of like something strange is really happening and they're isolated and like why are they out here mm-hmm. and it kind of shows you like what's gonna what almost like shows you the way of what's coming in a sense um but yeah it's definitely that going back now to your like your recent comment about the interaction with them it's uh very um 
it's very intense, I guess, for like the first minute, like the first time they see human other than their group. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of a sudden it's violent. You hear gunshots, they're dropping bombs from coming from a helicopter. And it's like one of the American guys gets shot in the leg. Like mm-hmm. what the hell is going on? And then they literally, the, uh, I think the Sweden or is it Norwegian? Norwegian. They get out, yeah, Norwegian. They get out of the plane and they start yelling at them, like because they're holding back the dog. It's like you look at this innocent dog and it's like, well, there's a language barrier there that they can't really communicate. So it's like, what the hell is he saying? Why are they trying to hunt this innocent dog? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of opens up a whole new story once the guy gets shot and they're like, oh, now we got to figure out what where are they coming from, why are they hunting him? Yeah, it's kind it's of kind of, uh, awesome. it it really speaks to the fact that you obviously don't realize until you've watched the movie for the first time that the movie could have been over in the first five minutes. Like if there wasn't that language barrier and if somehow like cooler heads were able to prevail and communicating like, but again, I guess there's no real way you can communicate that a dog is carrying a shape-shifting monster uh, without the other person being like, this person's clearly fucking nuts. Insane, yeah. But... (laughs) It's just interesting, like going back, it's one of the elements of horror movies that I really love in that if someone had done a little, if they had made a slight change to how they allowed something to play out, the entirety of like the chaos that eventually ensues during the course of a horror movie could have been avoided. It's kind of like, uh, this is a random aside, but that movie Saw, the original, where the guy's like chained to the bathtub and he needs a key. And we Mm -hmm. learn that in the first 30 seconds of the movie, he yanks the cork out of the tub, which the key is attached to, and the key he needs goes down the drain. And right. it's like, so we've been waiting the entire movie for this guy to find a way to free himself when he basically flushed his chance of freedom right. down the drain in the first 30 seconds. Like, just little moments like that that are kind of like, it says basically, screw the characters, like, this horror is yeah. going to unfold. And they could have prevented it, but they really had no way of knowing how to prevent yeah. it. That's just sort right. of an element that I always love about horror movies. Yeah. It's like a so close yet so far kind of moment. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like you could, this could have all been avoided yet. It takes just a subtle someone's reaction or something to go wrong mm-hmm. just a little bit, just to throw off and actually build up this movie, which, which comes out to be, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely that it's got like that, like you said, like it's like almost like a uniqueness of like how it could have been all stuck. It could have been all done in a couple of minutes but again the the language barrier and all that kind of got in the way and it just developed into this monster movie Mm -hmm. that it came out to be i guess yeah so i guess my question for you is like what when you hear about or when someone mentions the thing what is the Mm -hmm. first element that comes to mind that you would define the movie by like what about the thing kind of separates it from any other horror movie you've seen um i think for me, it'd be just, I think, the creature. Once you get to see how mm-hmm. it transforms, it's it's got, like, the disgusting slime thing. And then it's got, like, tentacles that come out of it. Like, it's just like, oh, it. I don't know. When I think of it, it's like the thing, it's like a nasty monster that you do not want to deal with, almost like a virus. Mm-hmm. It would, that's what it is, is. I think it's a virus. So, um yeah, I, I think of like the monster itself after seeing it. I think, yeah, that's probably the first thing that sticks to my mind. It's just like that scene where he's in with the 
where they first throw all the dogs together with the wolf mm-hmm. and it's just like slime everywhere and like the wolf turns into this monster and it's just like tentacles flying everywhere it's oh it's gruesome and gross and yeah so you have to give a shout out to uh rob botten who was the special effects makeup guy that was basically yeah. the lead uh and just his ability to kind of make all of these various hellish types of monsters and variations and John Carpenter, one of the things that he said in an interview when we were t- when he was talking about like wanting to make it so special effects focused, and he was yeah. a f- he had seen the original one as a kid, and the big difference between John Carpenter's version and the version the film that it's a remake of is that in the original from uh, the fifties, it's just yeah. a guy in a monster suit, like right. it's just a guy walking around, and it's it's basically like Frankenstein in Antarctica in a lot <laughs> of ways, which is what it looks like, and. Yeah. It's fine for that movie, but just the idea that he was able to take it to another place in terms of like this movie is regarded not only as being a fantastic example of practical effects, but also of being like cosmic horror. This idea Mm -hmm. that they're facing a monster and we see the monster periodically throughout the almost two hours runtime of the movie, but Mm -hmm. we still can't define what the monster actually looks like. Because right. it's always evolving and it's always changing. And yeah. while we see certain things like some of the uh, previous monster corpses we see, they're like half transformed. So it looks like mm-hmm. half a person, but they look kind of mutated. Yeah. And then we see like little bits of the dog pop up every now and then. But then at the end of the day, we see some parts of it that they could be from other planets. They could be other monsters yeah. that it's consumed or other alien species. Like when they have the dogs in the kennel and those massive arms like grow out of its back oh, and yeah, shoot yeah. up into the ceiling. And it's like, it it didn't get those massive arms from consuming a person or a dog. So like right. that could have been an example of an alien species or race that it came into contact with in a previous film or something right. like that, or a previous trip to another planet. Right. That unknowing of like a final form is something that I've always really, really admired about this movie. Cause a lot of yeah. those creature movies, like, once you see it, you've seen it. Right. And it never really evolves or changes or has much variation to it. Yeah, there's like a good mystery to what it really is, which mm-hmm. I think it it gives it its uniqueness. Um, and definitely it keeps you waiting to really figure out, like it makes you think, like what the hell is it? Because like it, every time we see it transform, it never really gets to take full, like, mm-hmm. like the process of evolving doesn't really fully get done because either they burn them or they burn the monster or like it gets cut halfway through. It's like feeding on dog or something. And like, and we never get to see the full like evolution of it. But at the same time, we know that it's not human. Like mm. it's definitely not like something from earth. Right. Uh, and again, I feel like the, the practical effects definitely something that they did a great job at it. And it gives it that creepy vibe to the movie that it's like, well, what the hell is it? It kind of gives it a face, but it doesn't really have a face mm-hmm. because it kind of evolves. It, it it all depends on what it eats and it becomes part of that, if not all that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely kind of cool that the way they did that. It's For me, it's one of the first movies, I feel like, to think about it, I don't know if in the times of like, I think it was like 82 that it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, so it's like, I mean, other than, I, think, I feel like this is the first big um, practical effect movie for me that I would think that came out during this time that like has this unique uh, um, monster like vibe that you don't really know what it is, but you kind of want to keep watching to see what happens to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it definitely has it, its uniqueness to it. 
Yeah, that ever-evolving nature is really at the key of the terror of this movie. And it's one of the few movies that, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go back and rewatch certain movies, it's never obviously going to be like the first time you watch the movie. Right. You can anticipate the scares. You kind of know what's generally going to happen and whatnot. And it does Mm -hmm. lose a little bit of that kind of like oomph factor or scare factor rather. But then there's a few movies, the thing being a prime example where every time I watch it, it feels like the first time I watched it. And it's just a testament to the timeless quality of the practical effects. And like you said, how everything is so disgusting and slimy. And it really does. Like they said that one of the key things in creating the different variations of the thing was tapping into phobias. So we have like, especially the, um, the arachnophobia being a big part Mm -hmm. of it where we see in the dog, it grows these spider legs out from it. And then later on when, there's uh, one of the characters has the the teeth in his stomach and his yeah. head ends up getting ripped off or his head removes itself from his body and it grows yeah. spider legs again. Like those scenes, no matter, I've seen this movie probably 10 times <laughs> or 15 times over the course of the last decade. Like those scenes still hit just as hard and they're still as right. disgusting and creepy because yeah. they're so rooted in those phobias and little things mm-hmm. that are just so disgusting and creepy yeah. and while obviously you know the different forms that the thing will take it is again that idea that like there's the off chance maybe it doesn't make any sense why i would think this but oh maybe it'll change into something else or something new because yeah. it's unknowing essentially yeah yeah i know like you said like i feel like the phobia definitely for like a person it definitely kind of creeps you out like that's something you can't really get rid of like the scary moments yeah you can the more you watch it you you anticipate it but the phobia itself it's like if you have a phobia of something i feel like it's always there so you'll always find it creepy Mm -hmm. and like you'll see a spider no matter what size it is you're like freaks you out you know like certain people get freaked out by that or get freaked out by snakes and all this weird like just the way they move and it kind of it definitely i think it did a good job at given that it's like a freaky factor that the movie has because it hits all these phobias, like you said, um, which makes it unique in its own way. Cause I don't think many other movies really go on. I mean, I'm sure there are movies, but it doesn't really do, I guess along with the practical effects that really adds on to that. Like you can see the hairs on the legs that when they grow the, all the creepy spider legs and all just weird things. Um, mm-hmm. it gives it all, all definitely it's uniqueness to it. Yeah. And I mean, again, like coming, always coming back to the practical effects, which have become like the industry standard and the kind of the reason why you should strive to use them. It's almost a 40 year old movie and the effects to this day, like I watched, or I I can't remember if we had watched the 4k version together at one point, but even Mm -hmm. in the 4k digital restoration of the movie, it still looks fantastic. It looks like they filmed it yesterday in terms of just the quality of the practical effects is of a caliber so high that they don't yeah. look aged at all. And it mm-hmm. kind of just, yeah. again, speaks to the fact that like if you over rely on green screen or like computer generated imagery and things like that, even though it was pretty limited for the eighties in terms of what they could yeah. do in that regard, it just speaks to the, this idea that if you put in the effort back in the day when you're making something in the future, yeah. it's going to hold up. And right. because the technology for, the practical effects that they used in the thing, it's a lot of the same techniques they use now in movies that are practical effects and kind of just the CGI stuff is always evolving. So of course that's not going to age well in most regards. 
in terms yeah. of just the quality or kind of making it feel seamless to the film. So yeah. that's the one thing I think that really makes sort of uh, Rob Bottoms. Kind of sets the standards, yeah. Yeah, exactly. For, like practical effects, yeah, which it definitely, I mean, yeah, I feel like it's obviously going to evolve as we get more better technology. The CGI, like you said, it's definitely going to evolve. But I think the practical effects of like of creeping people out, it's still that I feel like that's probably the standard of it, of having all these different phobias. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's definitely something that still carries on until today. Um, just, I feel like a lot, a lot of it's like almost this phobia of being chased. Like I think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like certain people that just hate being like chased at, mm-hmm. or like had to run away from something. I feel like I personally would panic if someone's chasing me with like. I've, I know someone's killing me. Like I would run, but at the same time, it's like, oh man, when do you stop running? Because right. I don't know. I just feel like that, that's also could be another phobia. But like, just like they definitely set. I feel like John Carpenter definitely set the standards for what a monster should be, mm-hmm. and the kind of like the way to really make people feel the feel the creepiness of a monster with all these different uh, practical effects, the slime, the the legs coming out of and not the unknown, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely, he definitely did a good job at that, at setting that so, sort of standard. So what is one of your favorite scenes that kind of fully displays just how strong the practical effects are? Cause there's a bunch, but like, what's one of the yeah. first ones that comes to mind for you? I think the dog scene, the original, when we first see the, the ken- monster the kennel scene. Yeah. Where he like, also along with like, we were talking about like the way the dogs are, um, I guess like almost dog actors, like mm-hmm. it's really amazing to see how calm they were. Like they get introduced to this bigger wolf looking thing mm-hmm. and it, they throw them basically in a cage with all the other dogs. And the dogs themselves are really great at, at their job. I guess they're actors, the actor dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of helps sell that scene too. But yeah, like back to the monster, like th- that scene where like it builds up until like we get to see the first thing, like, like it eats, things and it starts evolving like them i think that's just creepy stuff it's just like i don't know it's probably one of my they're definitely the most memorable scene from the movie for me yeah what i really love about that scene too is that you hear the transformation before you see it yeah you start to see the other dogs start to growl and they start to get Mm -hmm. uneasy when the wolf was introduced to the kennel yeah and then you also hear the wolf's transition into revealing that it's the thing first like there's that slight hissing sound Right. That doesn't, yeah. It doesn't sound like a dog, like a noise that a dog or a wolf or any animal right. would make in that scenario. Yeah. Like it's hissing, but it's not directing it towards anything. It's almost like right. it's almost like you're letting the air or the gas out of something, which we see right. once its face kind of like flays open yeah. and then it pushes the skull out and reveals this elongated tongue and then the right. spider legs and everything like the sound not only is Carpenter's score really well. Uh, does his score complement the tone of the movie? Yeah. But just the sound design and the mixing in general of the monster, like this is a little aside, but throughout the movie, like as the monster is starting to uh, evolve and take on the forms of other things, one of the main things that it has trouble doing is replicating human voice. And we see that when um, one of the characters gets taken over and they find Mm -hmm. him in that half, half transformation state. And he looks at him and like his hands are all fucked up and they look like claws. Right. And then he opens his mouth, but he can't speak. And he just like echoes this screaming sound that doesn't sound, it's very clearly screaming, but it doesn't sound human. And right, like yeah. just little moments like that or 
the noises that the spider head makes at one point where it's kind of like this weird echoey kind of scream that's muffled in a certain way. Yeah. It's just, it's super disturbing and it sends chills down my spine every time I hear it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, like you said, the, the way the, the sounds that it make, it definitely has that um, creepy, not from earth feeling to it. Mm-hmm. It just adds more to the monster itself and to like, me personally being curious as to what the hell it is like i want to see what the original form was um but yeah it definitely it definitely it's kind of that now that you bring that up that when the guy gets transformed into the monster he's kind of like half transformed because his hands are still like monster like but his body looks human mm-hmm. and it, it's kind of cool to really think about that i didn't really think about the fact that it couldn't speak it just made this random monster noise because because i don't know i just didn't think of it i was like oh i was I wasn't really thinking about it. Oh, it's evolving and it can't really speak the human language. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, I don't know. It's, it literally just struck me that I was like, Oh, that's pretty interesting. I didn't think of, think of it that way. Like it never, it could never speak the language that we speak. Yeah. It's cool that they cast this villain that is very much, it's not a perfect villain in the sense that I feel like a lot of the times antagonists in horror films, they're presented as not having any weaknesses. Especially, yeah. well, somewhat. They obviously yeah. always end up having some type of weakness, but they're presented right. initially early on as being invulnerable or something right. like that. And the idea that we get a monster that can take the shape of anything that it consumes, essentially, and it blends in really well and it's deadly. The idea that if you catch it at the wrong moment, it exposes itself is something right. that I really think helps avoid the trope of humans being faced with a insurmountable foe. In a lot of ways, like it's not like when you have like, let's say it's not fair to compare this to like slasher movies like Halloween or anything like that. But like the antagonists in those movies like Friday the 13th or that are scary because they're invulnerable. Right. At the same time, though, you can only go so far with that by presenting a villain that it you or an antagonist that you can defeat and revealing a weakness like that at a very Mm -hmm. opportune time, I think really lends itself to the different narrative potential of the story like this movie could have been again it could be a lot shorter if it was just them facing off an invulnerable monster which kind of eventually takes the uh, narrative conclusion that we would all assume it would but by kind of like making it somewhat vulnerable but still Mm -hmm. being terrifying i think really just speaks to how smartly they were able to adapt this from the remake or sorry how they were able to adapt it from the original right yeah i mean yeah they definitely I mean, I feel like we're talking about like it, at first we think we think about it like yeah, like you said, it, it doesn't really have weakness. But then we slowly start figuring out that heat heat becomes like a, a source of weakness because all it wants to do is just preserve itself yeah. to keep growing and growing, which is kind of it's kind of cool to think about it. But I feel like almost to get not to get too crazy about it, but like, I feel like that's virus nowadays. I feel like mm-hmm. with this like unknown factor to it, that it's like what does it really want to do? Like. I don't know. I feel like viruses are like, especially with this whole COVID thing, it's like, you know, like we don't like, you could see the characters, they, they're like even going through the, um, like later on to the movie when they, when they start testing each other, it's like, well, who has it? Who doesn't? Like, we don't really know who, who is, who's, who's got the, who's got the monster in them. Who doesn't? It's like this unknown factor. Mm. It kind of almost like even watching it, it reminded me of like what's going on now with this virus. Like 
you don't really know who has it until they get tested. And it's like the way they go about testing them, it's like they take the blood sample and we know the heat is a, it's something they doesn't like. So they poke it with the hot iron stick mm-hmm. um, just to figure out, see if it's in your blood or something and you might be possessed by it. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely kind of creepy to think about it even nowadays. And it also goes to show you that kind of still holds up although this virus, the COVID, it wasn't really supposed to happen, I guess. I don't know if it was or wasn't, but it's kind of creepy that you can kind of relate in that sense. It's like the unknownness of it, like mm-hmm. whether you have it or not. Yeah, um, um, yeah. That's, some, that's something that gets overlooked a lot with this movie that mm-hmm. John Carpenter actually speaks to in the uh, making of that I watched. There's a lot of parallels to real life in this movie that I think are almost equally as terrifying. Like yeah. the, a big part of this is the um, paranoia that all of yeah. the characters have amongst one another, like this idea yeah. that you don't know who has it. You don't know who's going to infect you. And some people have actually interpreted that as um, being like a commentary on kind of like the AIDS crisis in the eighties, mm. because it's this idea that you start looking at people sideways because it's not a normal disease where there's a physical change on the outside yeah. that shows that like, right. If somebody in your office gets the flu, it's very clear that they have the flu because of the way right. that they look of the way that they behave Mm-hmm. But it's this idea that what if you get something that doesn't have any symptoms like with COVID, which right. is so terrifying right now and is why yeah. a lot of people are like so frightened and rightfully so. Like it could be mm-hmm. anybody and some people don't even show symptoms. So that right. part that taps into the paranoia, I think, if anything, it makes this film even more relevant than it's ever been before or since right. it was released. You're right. Yeah. It also it also goes to show you like the like when something like this strikes like the trust between humans, Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of lust of trust and like, should I really believe him? And it's like this little like connection that kind of gets lost, even, even within the group that the American group, they get stuck in, in there and they're isolated there. Like there's a loss of trust. And I feel like we definitely see that a lot here. Like nowadays it's like, well, yeah, I've been taking care of myself. Someone could say that, but you really deep down, you know, it's like, well, I'm still kind of wearing a mask. Like I still yeah. don't believe you in that right. sense, you know? So there's kind of that connection, which kind of, it's, it's creepy to think about it, but yeah, it, it, it definitely has, it brings that out. Like, and then again, like I said, it's like, it, that's why it's still, I, I feel like this movie still holds up nowadays because mm-hmm. of that, like connection of between the characters. Like, I don't trust, like you tell me that you don't have this virus in you, but, uh, or this monster in you, but I still don't trust you. I need to get, I need to test you. Right. And definitely kind of like that connection between the people that it still carries on to nowadays. Yeah. And they didn't have, uh, they didn't have social media to track and see who was at the bar without a mask on yesterday or whatever, like we do. Um, but yeah, I think, so for me, one of my favorite scenes in the movie in terms of the practical effects is the scene where, um, Norris has a heart Mm. attack basically, and they have to take him to the infirmary and they're going to revive him. And they're doing the chest compressions and then they get the defibrillator. And on the second defibrillator part, uh, Copper, he uh, presses down on the guy's chest and a mouth opens up with these jagged teeth. And we find out that, oh, Norris was infected. And then we see, obviously, Copper loses both of his arms after Mm -hmm. the teeth kind of slam shut on them. And it's a scene that I think is almost at, it was definitely influenced by Alien to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. like with the chest burster scene. Right, right. And I think it, does such a good job of capturing just how sudden the change is in the thing. Like I obviously I always know that that scene is coming, but again, the split second difference between 
thinking that a person is completely fine in regards to like they're human. And then in a split second, you realize like, oh shit, they were so not human. And then you look down you just got nubs. Right. Your nubs are just leaking everywhere. (laughs) Like it's so, it's so sudden and so disturbing that Mm -hmm. it really is probably for me, the, one of the most iconic moments in the entire movie in terms of just how out there the effects are. And that scene alone apparently took 10 hours to set up. Oh, wow. Because they had to obviously give that actor a fake torso right. and everything, even though his, that was his real head they were using. Oh, wow. And then apparently the first time they did it, they fucked it up. Oh, Because geez. when his stomach starts emitting all of the different like strands juices. and juices yeah. and whatnot, <laughs> John Carpenter said it looked like a, a fountain at Las Vegas or something. Oh, like damn. it was just so yeah. over the top, like OD pressure yeah, yeah. shooting it out. So it looked like a fountain. Uh, right. And then they had to obviously redo that. But it's one of those scenes where it really does just highlight again how fantastic the practical effects are, not only from the monster, which is incredible in terms of like the teeth are opening up and then they're slamming shut on his arms, but also his arms, like he's standing there with those bloody nubs and like, that's still a super disgusting scene. Right. Like it's, it's just as gruesome and sudden and disgusting as it was like the first time I watched it and every time I've seen it since. Yeah, no, I definitely like that scene. Definitely, kind of shows you even like the what the monster is capable. Like, mm-hmm. whenever it needs to, it's willing to evolve. Like whether it's like usually we see the change in the the body itself, or like even when it opens its mouth, like it has different ways of killing you. It's not just a single way of like I'm just gonna eat you, but like it can cut your arms off. Or I feel like even had we maybe have we known more about it? Like, I feel like it could have like turned an arm into like a weapon and like stab you kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it definitely shows you different ways that it could kill you. And it's kind of, it's kind of, again, like to the uniqueness of that monster. But yeah, that scene, I think it's definitely probably the second scene that sticks to me, like next to the dog one. Um, because it, yeah, it's, that's something that I wasn't expecting the first time I saw it. Cause you would, you would think, yeah, he's just going in to like revive him the second time. And it's like, Oh shit. Like he just went further, like just into this guy's stomach. And like, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you realize that all oh, his arms are gone. And it's like blood everywhere. And then it starts like goosing out, out of the monster spraying all this like green juice and liquid. And it's just, Oh, it's gross. Yeah. And it, again, it comes back to that kind of unknowing quality about the final form yeah. or the ways that it can manipulate its body into a weapon that really mm-hmm. makes a movie a lot tenser or the tension remains on multiple rewatches or on a dozen rewatches yeah. because that unknowable quality, at least for me especially, is just like, okay, I think I remember what happens, but what if it does this yeah. instead? Or you start to almost create these yeah. scenarios that obviously are never going to actually unfold, but at the same time, like, it's possible. And that kind of speaks to the, my favorite parts of like cosmic horror movies where it's like the antagonist is very unknowable and there is no final form, which ultimately if you were to be in that situation, like a lot of the time, if you watch Halloween or something like that, inevitably you'll watch that movie with somebody and they'll be like, I would just run faster. or I would do this or that. It's like, yeah, yeah, because that villain, Michael Myers is very predictable in what he does. Right. But then when you're faced with something that you can't actually kind of like predict what it's going to do. Yeah. Like how do you counter that? It's kind of like right. that uh that Marvel villain uh Taskmaster where his his oh. superpower is just memorizing everybody's moves by what he basically yeah. watches like game tape on like Captain America and he's like <laughs> I can counter that, I can counter that, I can counter that cuz I know what you're going to do. 
Right. But this idea that you're faced with something and it's like, okay, first I'm going to infect a dog and then I'm going to eat a guy with my stomach, with my stomach teeth. Yeah. And then I'm going to turn in, and then I'm going to have the head fall off and to be a spider. Like it yeah. just keeps evolving and evolving and making the ceiling of scares basically unknowable. Yeah. Like right. it can't really break the yeah. ceiling because it never shows us the ceiling. Right. Um, but I think now since we've been talking about the practical effects for about 35 yeah. minutes, uh, <laughs> we should jump into like the characters. Right. Because yeah. this movie, every time I watch this, I'm amazed at the amount of characters that they have and just how yeah. well they're fully fleshed out. Yeah, they have a pretty good staff or the cast itself is pretty great, I'd say, for the most part. Yeah, 12. So the core yeah. cast of people at the American base are 12 people deep. Mm. Uh, and of course, like Kurt Russell is at the helm of that. But right. for as phenomenal as he is, like he's not the only solid performance. Like you would assume a movie that almost has 15 people in it would have a faulty character here or there. But mm -hmm. for the most part, they spend so much, they spend just enough time that you understand who these characters are and enough yeah. of their personality kind of comes out that right. there is no real weak link in the, in the character pool. Right. Or, They're all unique in their own ways. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I do. One of my favorite ones I'd say is uh, Keith David plays child. Yeah. I think he's definitely, I mean, we were talking about, I think he's, that's one of his first roles. Yeah, it was his first uh, role, which yeah. is so, insane to think about. Right, yeah. I think he did such a great job. And you kind of, you kind of feel for him. He's like, like, even the scene where he's like tied up, he's like, let me go. Like, he know, like, I don't know. I just feel like he, so, he sold that role so well. Like, for being a first big time movie, um, his, I, I, that's probably, other than Kurt Russell's character, uh, Mac, um, I think he's probably my second favorite one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they all have such a good camaraderie too, which they said yeah. was actually kind of like something that they actually had to channel in real life as well because mm -hmm. they're in this isolated place and it's below 20 degrees or something and it's fucking freezing. Right. And they don't have anything else to do out there other than what they actually do in the movie, which is sit around <laughs> and drink and watch old smoke. videotapes and smoke. Yeah. And bullshit yeah. with one another. So right. it really speaks to like as grueling as those conditions were, they were pretty central to replicating that for the in the terms of like the narrative of the movie. And yeah. um, just I'm, I'm always amazed that we can get like a 60 second introduction to a character and we just learn so much about them as a yeah. as a, who they are and what they're about. Like while while uh, Kurt Russell is the star and McCready is the focus for a lot of the movie. You only need about 30 seconds to understand what his character's about. Everybody right. else is kind of socializing and he's up in his cabin drinking and playing chess on a computer. Right. Yeah. And then he loses and he destroys one of the only sources of entertainment <laughs> they have out in the Antarctic. And it's kind of like, okay, this guy's a hothead who's an, right. who's a loner, who's like a hard yeah. drinker, like a, at least like on a rewatch when I see that he's a loner, he's a hard drinker. It's like, what did he do in his past life that led him to this occupation? Kind right. Of how did he get here? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How does, how do any of these people that aren't scientists get here? Because yeah. unless you're a scientist, why the hell would you ever want to be out in the middle of nowhere right. with no women, lo limited uh, entertainment? Like right. what is the incentive here? Yeah, that's true. That's uh, I feel like that, that'd be something that they probably could have expanded more on like the background of the characters themselves as to like how the hell do they get up there but i think back to what you were saying like about the cast like i think 
that relationship that they all have, it's kind of, it's kind of cool to see that, like how everything seemed like for me watching it, like it was like, they all kind of got along in the sense that like they've been together for so long Mm -hmm. that they kind of knew each other so well. And I think that relationship definitely helped give more life to the scenes when they were all together and like they knew exactly each other like they were kind of aware of each other's strength in a sense Mm -hmm. but obviously once we find the monster that you can kind of see that their relationship starts to fall apart where there's no trust and and you see like this tight group and then it slowly starts deteriorating because of this thing that can transform into any of them but uh yeah definitely their the the cast i think did an amazing job and It'd, it'd be more interesting to I'd be more interested to see how they'd explain more about their backstory of how they got like even Kurt Russell, his character seems like he was almost an army guy. He was, he just the security guard at mm-hmm. the facility or what, what did he do? Cause he, he knew so much about guns and it seemed like, it seems like he knew how to fly. I think he was the one flying the helicopter or something. Yeah. He's the only, I think he's the only helicopter pilot. Yeah. So it's like, how the hell did they, like, what, what was his key like role before that? You mm-hmm. know? So I'd be interested how they explain more about that. That would have been kind of cool. Yeah. So like the camaraderie between them two, I feel like that is what sells the paranoia so well. It's almost yeah. like if you and I were with our our group of mutual friends yeah. and it's like, we're all such good friends and yet one person has the capacity to take everybody else out. Right. You know what I mean? Like in not knowing who it is and if somebody knew they could be lying potentially, like Right. That adds a sort of tragic quality to it. And while these guys are all coworkers, they're a little more than that because they spend 24 hours a day with one another. And so for them to be so familiars with one another and to be Mm -hmm. somewhere in between friends and coworkers, it makes the paranoia that much more tragic because it's like this person that I was just like palling around with and watching old episodes of The Price is Right getting stoned in my room (laughs) with like, uh, like Childs (laughs) and, um, uh, I think it was Fuchs. Yeah. Oh no, it was uh Palmer. Excuse Palmer, me. Palmer. Yeah. The like stoner guy. Yeah. This idea that like, oh, sure, we're sharing a joint, but then you look at him the next moment, like he could have teeth coming out of his stomach or something like that. Right. And yeah. It's very believable that they would be distrustful of one another if they weren't friends. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, if it's just yeah. if it's somebody you don't know and there's a possibility yeah. they could kill you, you'd just be like, okay, fuck yeah. them. Like, yeah. I'm out. But this idea right. that you are actually invested in one another to a certain degree, it makes the idea that you might have to flamethrower one of them that right. much more like emotionally charged. Yeah. Like you have to have some hesitation to that. And right. that's yeah. one of the elements I think that separates McCready is that he's such a loner that right. he doesn't want to have to shoot Clark when Clark tries to jump him with the scalpel. But at yeah. the same time, like he has no qualms about killing somebody if they're going to try right. to kill him. Yeah, he kind of like distanced himself. Like he's he's aware enough that they're friends, but at any time they can turn on you, kind of thing. He right. definitely has that uh, characteristic of a loner, like you were saying. Um, but yeah, definitely those that relationship between uh, McGreedy and all the rest of the guy. I feel like all the other guys are more innocent, and they're just there to do their job. And McGreedy seems to be the kind where it's like he. To me, I don't know why, but every time I think of his character, I think of like he's definitely got like some kind of military background because he's like, like you said, he's a loner, he's on his own, but yeah, he knows he he's got these people to help him out. But at the same time, like you said, he he didn't hesitate to shoot. Um, who was it? Clark. The guy that, yeah, Clark. He jumped at him with a knife. Um, he didn't even hesitate to do it. So it's like 
there's some kind of like something different about him that separates himself from this whole group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think also what just helps is that Dean Cundy, who's the cinematographer and obviously John Carpenter's direction, they do such a great job of bringing Lancaster's script to life in terms of exposing just how bare their environment is and how like you're surrounded by all these people and you have these some sources of entertainment, which it's up for debate whether having like large stockpiles of liquor and guns is a good combination, yeah. but it re- they really do make you feel like you're a thousand miles away from civilization when you're mm-hmm. watching this. The idea that you're on your own, you're in this one area that's hospitable for human life, and now you're trapped in there with the most inhospitable antagonist you could ever have in terms of yeah. the monster. Like they really, he really does. They do such a fantastic job of just highlighting the terror of this environment, which is inherently hostile, but mm. it's not, not a lot happens in the environment. Right. You know what I mean? Like we hear that yeah. they get snowed in at the end of the movie, but at the same time, like it's not, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I guess it's just, it's very much a barren environment that the weather itself is what puts them at bay most of the movie. Yeah. But at the same time, like people aren't freezing to death and things like that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the weather. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. It's like, so the weather is something that kind of keeps them in, but it is not enough to harm any of the humans. They're more ter They're more terrified of what, what is, what could be inside them mm-hmm. as this monster creature. But uh, yeah, definitely. I think they did a, they did a great job at, at setting up the environment and like the, the, just this loneliness of like them just being there by themselves with no one for miles and miles near them. Um, they could definitely, they, it definitely gives you that isolated feeling of like, well, you can't run anywhere because there's just ice and snow all around us. There's nowhere to go. The helicopters at one point gets broken because they don't want anybody to escape. Um, and it definitely, yeah, they definitely give you this sense of isolation. They did, I think, they did a great job, like you said, at at basically showing, like, you know, this is they're in the middle of nowhere researching this stuff, and they came across this dog with a virus, and yeah, they definitely did a great job at that. I think the point I was trying to make, which I didn't make very well, was that. The idea that the film begins and everywhere outside of the research facility is terrifying in the sense that like you can freeze to death out there. If you don't have the proper resources, you'll die out there. And then they almost make, since the research station is like the last safe haven in that area, it's the only place where life can live by inserting a monster in there. That makes it the most dangerous place. And right. And all like they would almost be better off taking their chances out into just the snow, yeah. like right. they, they could, the, the, it's more than likely they would still freeze to death and whatnot. Right. But at the same time, are you going to take your chances with the elements or with an alien that is going right. to consume you? Like yeah. it's an interesting parallel that I don't think I appreciated until recently. Just the mm. idea that the entire film, the flip-flopping of what is like a hostile environment and which one is the safe haven. And then they essentially yeah. switch at the end of the movie. And right. I'm almost surprised that we don't have a character break down and actually do that. Like, right, fuck yeah. this, I'm out. I can't trust anybody. I'm just going to go wander off into the snow yeah. kind of thing. That would have been, yeah, that would have been nice to see actually. Like someone just like be like, all right, I'm going to risk it all. And just, I take my chances on walking miles and miles and then just actually 
deal with this monster that might be in me, might be in you. I don't know who has it, you know, who's who's getting possessed by it. But yeah, that's that'd be really cool to see because I feel like we definitely see that a lot in like movies nowadays where it's like you have that one character where it's like, all right, I'm leaving this situation. Obviously, they end up dying. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's always that one guy who's like, yeah, or I could just go do something else. Like yeah. go walk, walk myself to safety, I guess. Or There's always that one character that kind of opts out. Everybody's yeah. like, we we have to survive this. And he's just like, nope, no, I'm not surviving yeah. anything. Like, yeah. I'm just, I'm taking There's it better. in my own, I'm going out on my own terms. Yeah. Um, and while we're here to celebrate the anniversary of the original, of not the original, of John Carpenter's remake, um, mm-hmm. did you see the one that came out, into the thing that came out in 2011? You know, I didn't, I did not see it. I've seen part of it, but I have not okay. fully seen it. So, I watched that movie recently for the first time and I'd never seen it. And the reason I'd never seen it was you can't outdo John Carpenter's right. like, yeah. there's no way you're going to be able to outdo it. And the remake or it's rather, it's a prequel to yeah. John Carpenter's the thing. It takes place in the Norwegian base or another research facility. Oh, okay. And the biggest mistake that that movie made is, is that it went from the practical effects, to the CGI. Oh, and yeah. It just does not, tr- the CGI is not particularly good. Yeah. I think the CGI kind of loses that touch. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. loses that touch. And it's like that movie, the prequel is only nine years old at this point. Aww. And the CGI already looks dated and it, it looks terrible in my opinion. Damn, yeah. The CGI does do a good job of kind of like, cre- it keeps the trend going of this unknowing horror. We see all mm-hmm. these new different forms that the thing can take. And it does yeah. tap into that idea that it is a cosmic horror monster in that it's unknowing what it's going to do next, what it's going to evolve into, which adds a certain layer of tension. And there's certainly some disgusting parts in the movie, like super gory and whatnot. But again, it is CGI and it already looks dated and it's not even a decade, which Uh, reinforces the original in that the original now is almost 38 years old and the practical effects. Again, they look like they were, it was filmed yesterday in terms of its quality. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing part of it, but I don't, I don't fully remember the full movie. I just know that there was a, it was like almost like a slug monster kind of, yeah, so alien the, slug. That thing was one that, of the forms where like this guy's hand comes off, and then his yeah. hand turns into a slug, basically, uh, and then the the slug hand monster tries to like go in somebody's mouth. Jesus, uh, yeah, but yeah, I mean that movie. The, what Another thing I didn't like that I think reinforces how strong the narrative uh, Bill Lancaster's script was for John Carpenter's is that it doesn't try to explain too much where mm-hmm. the new film tries to shows and tries to explain too much. Like in the, yeah. in John Carpenter's, we see that the thing is essentially stealing components to make a spaceship to leave earth. Right. In the prequel, he actually, we actually see the ship. Oh, and, like, wow, that's cool. and there's this whole section with the ship, but something is lost in that. Yeah. It kind of just, it shows too much in, mm. I don't know. It just, it, it's not that it's different than John Carpenter's. It's just this idea right. that like, there's no mystery left to anything. Right. Like in, yeah. in Carpenter's, we see the brief moment where the ship flies in and lands on the planet. And then we yeah. see it in the ice basically right. when, uh, Kurt Russell takes a crew up to go investigate where the Norwegian dig site was. Yeah, and they go underground. Yeah. So yeah. that part is cool. Just because it's brief glimpses, there's still plenty of mystery behind it. 
Whereas mm-hmm. when it's shown explicitly to the viewer, and we actually, I think that final scene where they investigate the ship in the prequel is about 20 minutes, 15 or 20 oh, minutes. Wow. It just shows too much. And once the mystery right. is gone, you're just like, this is just another, this almost becomes more sci-fi than horror in a certain way. Okay. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, that would definitely, I probably would not want to see where it came from or what right. kind of ship it came in. I, yeah. Like you said, I think it would definitely lose that mystery touch. Um, yeah. I might, maybe I'll, I should go back and watch it. I definitely have to. Just, just to, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't as good as the first one. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm expecting it not to be, but just to see what, how everything ties in together or they try to tie in together. Yeah, I don't think that the movie is terrible. A lot of people mm-hmm. say it's terrible or atrocious, but that's because they're solely comparing it to John Carpenter's, which mm-hmm. is a ridiculous angle to take because it's right. ne- nothing's going to compare to that. Right. There's no way that they will ever make anything in that universe as good as the orig- as good as John right. Carpenter's. But remo- yeah, I feel like that's yeah. I mean, sorry, that, that just I feel like yeah, it's kind of hard to beat the original one. When, definitely. Once you remove your your um, your comparisons to the John yeah. Carpenter's, on yeah. its own, it's a pretty decent movie. It's decent. Yeah. Yeah. It's hurt by a lot of things, and it's certainly not as successful as the original or even some standard horror movies. Like mm-hmm. the characters are not nearly as memorable or they are not nearly don't have personalities that are nearly as defining or interesting or engaging, yeah. but it does have cool monster design, even if the CGI to bring them to life is flawed, but it's definitely not as atrocious. So I would say if you, as much as you like the thing, there yeah. are certain elements of it that you would actually enjoy that you would probably enjoy. It's one of those things where fans of John Carpenter's, hate that prequel because it's not it pales in comparison and yet fans of john carpenter's the thing like you and i would appreciate the kind of like nuances that are in the monster design yeah and things like that so yeah i probably definitely end up watching it yeah yeah i would say it's worth checking out it's just make sure you follow up watching that with the original right yeah <laughs> put things back, back to perspective. the original yeah no yeah definitely um definitely have to check it out i mean i'm i feel like to follow John Carpenter's and try to kind of, kind of, if if he doesn't have a part, I feel like if he doesn't have a part in the movie, mm-hmm. then it probably won't be as good. I feel like you definitely lose that touch of the original, not the I guess the original creator in a sense, mm-hmm. like the original director. Um, but yeah, you definitely, I feel like you probably lose that touch. Um, but I'll still, I'll still watch it just to, because I remember, I think I've seen it, but it was just probably a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much of it. I just remember, like I said, that slug thing. But other than that, that was all I remember from it. Yeah. I mean, not terrible, not great, but you'll probably yeah. get something out of it more than people that Appreciate are unable, yeah, people that are unable yeah. to kind of remove their bias. But uh, right. in kind of closing out, were there any other elements of the thing that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to? Um, no, I think we hit them all, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the dog. The, yeah, yeah. No, I think we we definitely hit them all. It's always so refreshing when you return to a movie on its anniversary after like a certain chunk yeah. of time. Like generally, the anniversaries are only really official when it's like a decade, two decades, three, four decades. Right. It's really refreshing to return to a movie or to keep returning to one, and it being yeah. just as enjoyable as the first time you watch right. it. And it's yeah. it hasn't lost any of its kind of bite or the things that make it so defined mm-hmm. in kind of the lineage of horror movies and yeah. whatnot. Like it's 
sometimes, especially I've had this problem in the past with movies from the 80s, uh, returning to some of the ones that are like the classics. Yeah. Some of them I find are kind of caught up in the clout of Mm -hmm. they, they were the first ones to do something. But sometimes that's not always indicative or something that has actually done something that's super refined. Right. In terms of like introducing a new concept that might at the time have been radical, when you look yeah. back in 30 or 40 years, it might not have the same kind of effect that it used to. Right. That's certainly not the case with this movie. Right. Yeah. It still hits those, like we talked about, those phobias and those nasty. I think the practical effect is basically the selling point of this, the movie in a sense, mm-hmm. like, which like you really get to see like how well it could be done, like practical effects. Although nowadays we have CGI, I think practical effects could also still like, I mean, as it hasn't evolved as much as CGI, but you can still do a lot of great things with it. And it brings more realistic to it mm-hmm. instead of always having a green screen in that sense. I mean, back in the day they had green, I mean, there was a scene, there was a couple of scenes where they had green screen, but yeah, the practical effect, you just, it, it's something about the fact that it's there. You can touch it you can see it. You know, it's like, it's it just makes it different. I feel like for the actors, I'm sure it's also a lot easier if something's there they can see and touch, yeah, and sometimes smell. I feel like that thing that <laughs> creature smell gross. It's, oh, I bet. Oh, it's slimy and ugh. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, I think if people really dig movies like this, like I'm trying to get better at recommending things that are similar to what I'm recording or yeah. reviewing rather. Uh, a movie came out a few years ago, and I'm pretty sure I've. I forced you into watching it. The Void. <laughs> the Void? Yeah. Did I? I think we might have watched it. Yeah. Then. So that movie came out, I think, three years ago now. Um, oh, but yeah. yeah, definitely check out The Void if you haven't. It has a lot of the same practical effects that are very clearly influenced by John Carpenter and The Thing. Um, mm. And it its narrative is not nearly as good and whatnot, but I think it's one of the few recent examples of movies that they opted to do heavily practical effects and it really comes across in kind of conveying the same tone of this unknowing ever evolving creature that like you said, if you can touch it, it looks real and it has that kind of effect and it is just super impressive. And I recommend that movie as well. Not that it is um, necessarily super similar to the thing, but it kind of continues on in terms of talking about the lineage of John Carpenter's the thing and that, we're almost at the 40th anniversary. Like it's nice to see it still have such an apparent influence on uh, modern horror films and whatnot. Yeah, I know that I feel like, yeah, it's definitely goes down as one of the classics, the thing. I mean, there's definitely a bunch of them, but I feel like the standard of like, we've been talking about the standard of practical effects is definitely there that it's kind of got set by John Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's 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 awesome to have something like that. I mean, it it's it just shows you like it, even nowadays it's still a great movie, and just if you do something right, like it can t- it can it can literally just live a lifetime almost. Yeah, as far at least our lifetime. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how long how much longer it's still going to be liked. But mm-hmm. for I mean, at least for me and for you, I'm sure it's like it's still a great movie, although it's been made way before our time. Mm-hmm it still like holds up, which is awesome. Yeah. I think that's, that's a perfect uh, final words on the thing. So I appreciate you coming on and getting to revel in a film that we both love a lot for the uh, 38th anniversary. Yeah. Thank you for having me. No problem. Anytime.
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.